0: Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Be diligent
1: to present yourself, approved to God, as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. If you're a first-time listener, you'll be interested to know: in the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions concerning God's word as you've been studying it. And if you have a particular issue that you'd like to discuss or a question that you'd like to ask as you have been studying the Word of God, or or maybe an issue that relates to your personal life, family, or ministry, and you want counsel, well, if we can help, by God's grace, we will do the very best that we can. All you need to do is pick up the phone locally. It's 525-1859. We have internet listeners because we broadcast throughout the world at WAGP.net. And they can join us directly at TBL for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. Or if they're in the United States, they can call us toll-free at 877, the call letters WAGP 980. When you call, you can go on the air live or simply dictate your question. You can remain totally anonymous if you like. Uh, we'll be happy to receive it however you'd like to give it. I think we have our first caller already, Rick, so let's go to them. We do
0: indeed, Pastor. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible
1: Good morning, y'all. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, Carl, I use a um, New King James Version Bible. So Mm -hmm. Acts 8.37 is included in
0: the text. Yes. But it's a John MacArthur Bible, so his footnote says that that verse is not found in the oldest and most reliable
1: uh, manuscripts, But you said the <laughs> week before last right. that the manuscript evidence demands inclusion, so uh, it's, it seems like a pretty
0: important verse about baptism, so I wonder if it you can explain that. It is,
1: it is, you know, and uh, I, I don't agree, disagree with John MacArthur on many textual issues. Here's the challenge that um, Christians face as they read the Bible in our day, is that we have like 101% of the Bible, if I can say that. And what that means is, and and I know you are probably aware of this, but for some of our listeners who maybe are exploring this issue for the first time, when they wrote ancient manuscripts, they usually wrote from end to end. There's no white space in most manuscripts like we would have, say, in our English Bibles where we have margins and separations between paragraphs. Paper was so valuable and so expensive. They wrote from end to end. Uh, In the Greek New Testament, there is no punctuation. Your mind has to supply that. Uh, There's no spaces between words. It's just solid letters. Um, Occasionally, when someone was given a manuscript, they would uh, copy it for their own personal use. People would like to have personal copies or a page of Scripture. Obviously, this is pre-printing press. And so when they copied the Scripture, sometimes they would add their own commentary into the text of Scripture, into the body of Scripture. Uh, In doing so, uh, if someone then copied that manuscript, then indeed uh, you had a series of manuscripts where you might have someone's personal note, but not necessarily something that God inspired. So here is the debate. Uh, Sometimes there's a question of, well, which manuscripts are more accurate, those that are oldest or those that are most plentiful? Um, Well, it's, it's certainly true that those that are oldest are what we would consider to be closest to the original. But with that said, sometimes we have manuscripts that are most plentiful, Uh, But we don't necessarily know how old the origin was from which they were copied. Now, let me just say, when we affirm the inerrancy of the Bible, we're saying that when God wrote the Bible, he wrote it infallibly, without any mistakes, without any error. There are some places where Christians have to work through and say, well, is this part of the original, or is this a, a manuscript edition that a scribe wrote because it was his own personal copy of Scripture? In some view, Acts 8.37 in that way. I don't for several reasons. Number one, it fits the flow of the argument. Uh, it is true that when the eunuch says, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Uh, without the intervening verse, which the NIV puts at the bottom of the page, um, it just says, And he ordered the chariot to stop and both went down into the water. Um, Philip asked, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, some would say, well, that was put in there for clarification by some scribe to argue that uh, it was there for the sole purpose to say that baptism uh, follows conversion. To me, it fits the flow of the argument, but two, you have comments in the writings of the church fathers, those who uh, live for the next couple hundred years after the apostles die out. Some of the church fathers, as they're called, were just really super people and really great folks. Some who are given that title weren't so great, and they are trying to settle some theology in their mind that is of utmost importance, but most of these guys are really like solid people. And you have even people like John Chrysostom in the 4th century, who was a Bible expositor. And so he comments on this verse. Why? Because he believes it's part of the original text. So the argument here that, well, because it's not in some of the oldest manuscripts we have, I don't think is a good argument, because you could take the King James text that's used, uh, which is obviously a much later uh, texts in terms of of originals that we have that we know it was done from. But we don't know the origin of the originals that we have. They could have been older than the one that preceded it. So um, I think it fits. I don't think it should be put at the bottom of the page. Uh, the NIV, let me just say parenthetically, was a translation of the Bible done by people who were non-inerrantists. In other words, um, within the translation board of the NIV, and there was over 100 people involved, there were some involved that did not believe in biblical infallibility, uh, that the Bible could be written in an inerrant fashion. And I think that really flavored their view of their text. Now, you know, uh, John MacArthur has an NIV study Bible, and I appreciate the fact that he does, and his, his reasoning is, is that the NIV is the most popular translation in the English tongue today. Why is it? Well, I think because, first and foremost, the guy who was the head of Zondervan, uh, who himself was not a professing born-again Christian, but who was a marketing genius, produced the NIV in over a hundred different formats. I don't know how many of those are available today, but everything from the businessman's Bible to the businesswoman's Bible to the athletic Bible to the counseling Bible and I mean on and on and on and on and on. All these packaging things in it would catch people's eyes and say, Hmm, the athlete's Bible. I think I, I need a copy of that and they would read it. And praise the Lord that they did because you know, whatever translation you're using, ninety nine point nine percent of it is pure. Um, But there were some translations, that, like the NIV, and of course the NIV uh, is a highly debatable translation today. When people say they use the NIV, they're using the NIV-84 initially. The TNIV uh, was to be produced in the 1990s, and some Christian men like uh, James Dobson, who had a huge influence in the publishing world, opposed it, and got some other people to oppose it with him, largely due to the leadership of Wayne Grudem, who was a professor at the time at at Trinity Evangelical Seminary. And uh, the TNIV was basically trying to create a gender-sensitive, almost gender-neutral Bible— They said, well, we won't do it. We won't produce it. They went out and spent the next several years doing it anyway. These people just lied openly, and all of a sudden, to the shock of the evangelical world, out came the TNIV. A lot of people were upset. It didn't make very big sales. So now what they did in 2010, it came out in computer form, 2011 in paper. Now when you go to buy an NIV, you're not buying NIV-84, you're buying NIV-2010, which is a blend between the TNIV and the old NIV. And again, to me, that lacks integrity. Um, in terms of trying to create a gender-neutral Bible because you have to take some singular pronouns that say he and you have to turn them into they's so that people aren't offended. Well, certainly there are some places in the Bible where the word man, you could translate as people, and that's legitimate. And the uh, new NIV does that because the word is generic, not referring to man, but mankind. So if you want to translate it people, that's okay. But other verses, they have literally altered. The only other translation that does this is the ESV. And the ESV is, again, overall, a very good translation, um and it's 99.999% pure but the ESV came out of the RSV, and the RSV was the first American translation done by what we would call liberal scholars. And when it came out in the 1950s in Bibliotheca Sacra, which was the uh, theological journal of Dallas Seminary, uh, you had guys like Merrill Unger and a whole team of people who opposed the translation because you had men like C.H. Dodd who um, had trouble with certain things, like God being a God of wrath, and so he changed the word ex, uh, propitiation to expiation and changed the word virgin, a virgin will conceive to a young maiden. And, and he was manipulating the text to fill his own theological bents. Uh, the ESV uh, bought the rights from the World Co- or National Council of Churches, which is a, an apostate organization today. They bought it. Uh, because it had been replaced with the new RSV, which was even more liberal. Um, and uh, they turned it in the, into the ESV. And they, by their uh, wisdom, uh, fixed some of those verses, but they left a verse like Acts eight thirty-seven out in the margin. Um, the ESV and the study edition, the official study edition, for instance, argues that uh, John 8, 1 through 11 uh, is not inspired and shouldn't be in the Bible, but it's helpful because a situation like this could have taken place. I don't like that. Uh, In fact, I give 10 reasons why I think it should be included, as John MacArthur argues for its inclusion. Um, So the New American Standard, on occasion— will put something in brackets, and when they put it in brackets in the body of the text, it's not because they don't believe it's inspired, but they feel like as a matter of integrity to let some Christians know who are reading carefully uh, that in some manuscripts this is not found, but they included it in the body of the translation because they believed it was inspired. Now, there's a few places, like at the end of Mark's Gospel, where a couple of verses they don't include and they write out in the margin, and I think actually they're they're correct in that assessment. So um, that's probably longer than you wanted to hear, but it... It it changes nothing in either case in terms of baptism. Baptism in the New Testament, always illustrated all the way through Acts, is done after conversion. But it is a great question that she asked. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right. Corin from New Haven, Connecticut, writes, I'm having doubts about my salvation because of a realization I had recently that most of my faith in the Bible and Jesus lies in logic rather than by faith. I am 21 and was recently baptized and have fallen into a bit of complacency in recent months. I spent a lot of time in your sermons and in apologetics and science. I caught myself thinking about if there is no God. I realized that what I believe in detail is that there is a God based on logic, philosophy, and wishful thinking. To me, it makes sense to spend your life worshiping a God for an eternal reward. It's easy to choose Jesus when you decide there is a God. In fact, I 100% believe Jesus is God if there is a God. But what what if... I don't 100% believe is there is a God. Basically, I've spent my time knocking down other religions in favor of Jesus, and now I've gotten to the point of no God versus Jesus. I didn't realize I felt this way until recently, and it's very unsettling. Have I seen God with my own eyes? Have I touched him or heard him speak to me? If the answer is no, then how can I be 100% sure? At this point in my life, I see that Jesus being God just makes sense, especially when you look at the evidences in the Bible, but if the idea that there may not be a God is in the back of my mind, is my salvation questionable? If I had a multiple-choice test, I would choose all the right answers for salvation according to the Bible, but I wouldn't know for sure if I got an A or an F after taking it. Uh, in other words, I rely on Christianity and attempts to live to God's standards every day, but... Does that even matter if I'm just banking on that being right and not 100% sure I'm right? Well,
1: it's a good question. We appreciate that here from New Haven, Connecticut this morning. Let me see if I can respond. There's usually, when I hear someone like yourself uh, speak or ask me a question like that, there's usually one of maybe three issues that are uh, interfacing in your, in your mind and in your personal experience. Uh, Certainly there are philosophical reasons that people can give, the ontological, the epistemological, and so forth, uh, arguments for the existence of God. And they're interesting, but I don't think they're necessary. The Bible never actually even tries to prove the existence of God because it is assumed that it is self evident. And it really is in, in three primary ways that the Bible affirms creation, conscience, and care. The creation of God, uh, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through the things that he has created so that they are without excuse. Uh, I, I happened to uh, turn on public TV. It's one of the few channels I get, and uh, they were doing a thing on animals the other day, and they were talking about you know how smart crow birds can be and certain dogs, and and then they went into bees and they talked about how they um, a, a man proposed the theory in the 1940s, but it was actually confirmed in 2005. Uh, and, and i 'm a an old beekeeper i wasn 't very good at it. All my bees ended up dying, but i did uh, did keep bees for a while there in the 1990s and had more honey than I knew what to do with every time I went to someone 's house I say, "Here, I have a pound of honey um, In either case, uh, what was so fascinating that they 've discovered about bees is when a bee comes into the hive, he does a little dance. And the dance actually not only uh, it, and the purpose of the dance is to come in and just say, to "My fellow bees hey I, I hit gold, you know let me tell you where there 's a bunch of flowers where you can get some real pollen and the The dance as it 's been analyzed is done in reference to the angle of the sun, uh, where the sun is and uh, and then within that angle, the proximity, uh, you know, within a few hundred uh, meters, this so-called dance lets the other bees know where to go to find flowers to get pollen. It's really, it's, it's remarkable. Now, did that just happen? Did, uh, did bees evolve into this higher state, or is there a creator God who made them? The Bible teaches that God, the creator, his fingerprints are seen in Is creation. When I take the watch off of my wrist, I I don't think it was shaken up in a bag for five billion years and out came this working timepiece. No. Uh, The created thing points to a designer, Uh, the creation points to the creator God. So we know there's a God through creation and we know there's a God through our conscience. It either affirms or accuses us. Well, who are we displeasing or pleasing? Um, Well, the God who created us, the Bible teaches. And so that Gentiles who don't even have a Bible show the work of the Bible written in their hearts. And so you can go to some cultures of the world where they've never seen a Bible, never heard of Jesus, and and yet they believe in God. In fact, uh, less than 1% of 1% of the 7 billion people on the planet are so-called atheists or agnostics. Now, it may be fashionable in our day to say I'm an atheist or an agnostic, but they're really not. They know there's a God, and the third component in which God reveals himself is through his care, his care for humanity, such that he shows his sun to shine not just on the righteous, but the unrighteous, and the rain to fall in both groups. So between those three aspects of God's revelation, men know there is a God, as you do. And so Satan is probably one playing with your mind because he's causing you to doubt. And so the best way to deal with doubt is really to study the Bible in an in-depth fashion. And I'm glad you're listening up there in, in the Connecticut area where we broadcast. What I would encourage you to do is maybe to start doing an in-depth study of the Book of Romans. And the sermons are being posted online. I think that would be a huge help to you. And as you immerse yourself in Scripture, the more you were in it, studying it line by line, you would be absolutely convinced that only God could have written this book, that no human could have ever have uh, dreamed it up. And so in and of itself, just knowing that the Bible is the only book that God ever wrote. I mean, who can foretell the future, but God alone. And so the Bible is a remarkable book and faith will come from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the more you grow in your faith, the more your doubts will dissolve. Um, So there's one of a couple things going on, either a, You are purely approaching God in a rational sense. And let me just say, there's nothing necessarily wrong with logic. There's many examples of divine logic found within the pages of Scripture itself. In fact, we examine several of those in our Exposition of Romans. Uh, Believing in the Lord God... And believing in the Bible is not an exercise that's illogical. It's not, a, uh, it's not putting your brain on a shelf and taking some blind leap. God has revealed himself to show himself to be a trustworthy God. And it's based on his trustworthiness that he asks you to exercise faith, to take him at his word, because he's displayed himself. As one who is trustworthy. So either A, the devil's just kind of playing with your mind and tormenting you as a new Christian, or B, you've never really come to genuine faith in Christ. And sometimes when people say, Well, I've accepted Christ and I've been baptized, and, and then they're just overrun with doubts to the point where they end up denying the Bible altogether in Christianity, then those are people who have never really truly met the Lord in salvation. So I want to encourage you to make sure that you understand the gospel clearly. You might want to go online at searchthescriptures.org and listen to the presentation. Would you like to know God is your friend? I think that would be very helpful to you. The, the third arena that sometimes floods people with these kinds of Thoughts that I don't know if there's a God, if the Bible is true, if heaven is real, if hell is real, is a moral issue that's unfolding in the person's life. And because they're living immorally, uh, they want to justify that immorality, and the easiest way to justify it is to close out their conscience and the God who's speaking to them within their conscience. And so very often when I meet a person, hey, you know, he'll say, he'll say to me, well, you know, I don't know if there's a heaven or a hell. The Bible, I don't know if there's a God. And I say, well, what's her name? Tell me who you're living with. Uh, there's usually a moral issue or what's his name in our day? You know, they may be in some homosexual relationship. So that's where I would start. Um, uh, and, again, ask the Lord to help you. It may just be that you're in a spiritual battle here, and Satan is—and the way to alleviate that is through immersing your mind in the Word of God. And start in my study of Romans, the first eight chapters. Those are all posted
0: up there online. That's where I would begin. And a question along the same lines. Uh, somebody called in just before we began our program today. Uh, he asks— who are the people who say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, I never knew you? Secondly, who is the person at the wedding feast who is not wearing proper clothes and is cast out? And also, who are the goats? Uh, lastly, in Revelation, it says, no liar, fornicator, adulterers will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if someone truly believes in Jesus Christ's blood atonement, but maybe they fall, is it possible for you believe you are saved but actually be one of these in one of these three categories i asked him so you're basically asking uh you know the security of salvation he says no uh is it possible to delude yourself which is kind of what that other person sounded like
1: well yes it is possible to delude yourself and to have a false assurance of salvation and that's the whole purpose for jesus unfolding this portion of Scripture so that people won't be deluded, so that they won't out of shock hear the words in Matthew seven twenty-three that you referenced, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Why? Because I never knew you. Not I once knew you, but I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. And so this whole section begins with an exhortation to enter by the narrow gate because there's a wide gate and a broad road that's leading to eternal judgment to destruction, and many people are on it. And of course, to underscore the importance of this, he reminds us that if a person is saved, that their life will show it. And that's the principle that you find all the way through the Word of God, that works do not save you, but works are the fruit and evidence of salvation. Most of us can quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. It, referring to the whole grace-by-faith process, you might say our salvation is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Uh, But then the next verse says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So we're not saved by works, but we're saved onto, as the King James renders it, or to do good works. We're saved on to good works. So when a person has become a new creature in Christ, his life changes, and it's possible to perform outwardly in Christianity without an inward reality. And again, to underscore that, he doesn't go for some, you know, blasé, ho-hum kind of testimony. He goes for the most dramatic one you could think of. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. In the parallel text, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and you don't do the things that I say? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and your name cast out demons, and your name perform many miracles? And he doesn't, by the way, deny the possibility that these things could be done, that someone could preach in Christ's name, because there are many a false prophet, even in our day, that are preaching in the name of Christ. There are people who have cast out demons in the name of Christ. Uh, Satan can do that sometimes to um, get people, to follow some leader who intersects in the demonic realm and the devil will respond to him because people say, Ooh, wow, he's a man of God. He has power over the demonic realm. And actually he's on the opposing team or he's deluded himself to think that he's on the right team. Um, and even do a miracle in his name. Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse at the end of time, especially we would see people come and say, I'm Messiah, or I'm a representative of the the Lord, and and do miracles. Why? Because the devil can do miracles as well. He can simulate and imitate the things of God. And so what's the ultimate sign and mark that a person has had conversion? He who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Uh, There's a changed life, Um, not just outward performance. There's a desire to obey the commandments of God. And that's why he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, not you who sin. We all sin in many ways, James says, but those who sin as a way of life, that that's the driving force. Um, Your second question, let's see, the marriage feast, that would be in Matthew 22, and of course he he speaks of a wedding feast. Um, let me just read the Kingdom of Heaven maybe compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and in the parable, "The King is God, and the Son is the Lord Jesus and He sent out his slaves, his servants, to call those who'd been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come that 's the Old Testament. The prophets habitually invited people and they ignored the message of the prophets, not all but many. And this was certainly true in Jesus' day. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, Tell those who've been invited, Behold, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they didn't pay him any attention. Remember those who are, are listening are the religious leaders here of Israel. The Bible reminds us he came to his own, but his own received him not, but as many as received him to them, he's given the authority, the power, the right to be children of God. They paid him no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. That's why Jesus held them responsible for the blood of all the prophets from Cain to Zechariah, as he tells us in Luke's gospel. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to the slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Um, They didn't want to come. Uh, Jesus, when he weeps over Jerusalem, um it's not that they could not come it's they would not come they chose not to come why because they were self-righteous and so that becomes evident as you go on it says therefore go into the main highways and as many as you can find invite them to the wedding feast now go to the gentiles he came to his own first in the limited commission he said don't go into the way of the Gentiles." Go only to the house of Israel. But when the commission became greater and broad, now he said you can go to the ethne, to all nations. Go to the Gentiles. And Paul did this. He went to the Jew first, then the Gentiles. There was a turning point in Paul's ministry where there was just utter total rejection. He said, okay, that's it. Now we're just going to focus on Gentiles. And those slaves went out into the street, and they gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in the place where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called, but few are chosen. So a person, much like in Matthew 7, it's not enough for him to respond outwardly. But he has to respond inwardly. He he has to appropriate the clothing that the king offers. And some people came into the wedding feast without the right clothing. And if you try to go to the marriage supper of the lamb without the right clothing, you won't be there. Um, You will be in your own righteousness, which falls short of the glory of God. And that's why we need to have what the Bible would describe as imputed righteousness, where God reckons us or counts us in all of our unrighteousnesses as righteous. And there's only one way for God to be able to do that. And that's by putting your faith in trust in the Lord Jesus. Uh, The next question, what goats, I think. And so Um, That judgment, there are actually six or seven different judgments that are described in the Bible. That particular judgment found in Matthew 25 uh, during the Olivet Discourse or Sermon that Jesus gave on the top of the Mount of Olives, the place he ascended to heaven from, and the place that he will literally actually stand on. We're going to go to that place as we go to Israel in the fall and would love for some of you to come to read your Bible in black and white is wonderful, but to read it in living color, having been to Israel, it's marvelous. It's a great experience. And so um, he's describing those people at the second coming who um, dealt with Christ's brethren in a negative way. Uh, They didn't care for the brethren of the Lord. Why? Because they didn't love them. Uh, they were Christ haters. They opposed him. Um, and so again, you see a a mark of conversion is a changed life. Well, you know, when did not we clothe you and feed you and visit you in jail and all these things? He said, well, when you didn't do it to the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it to me. Jesus identifies himself with the body of Christ. And so what we do to his people, we do to the Lord. Uh, Jesus, when he met Paul in the Damascus Road, he said, you know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, what do you mean? Jesus had already been ascended and in heaven. Because when Paul opposed the body of Christ, he opposed the Lord Jesus. And so the goats in the passage are the unbelievers as seen by their lives that do not identify through a new birth with Jesus Christ. And so they're lost, and the sheep are the righteous. Was there one more part? Oh, yeah. In the Revelation, which is kind of, again, you asked really a a great number here of questions all at once. But in the Revelation, um, he he speaks of people who are excluded from the kingdom of God. And the people who are excluded from the kingdom of God— are people who um, don't love the Lord. He doesn't say they don't sin. Let me read um, first in Revelation 21. um, And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it and nothing unclean and no one who practices abominations and lying shall ever enter into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Again, the key word is the same word that's used in Matthew 7, that's used in Galatians 5, and it's the word practice. Their lifestyle is a lifestyle of unrighteousness. They practice unrighteousness. Outside, he'll say in the next chapter, are the dogs and the sorcerers and immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. A Christian can lie, but he doesn't love it. Um, He doesn't live a lifestyle that denies Jesus Christ. So we're saved by grace and grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. Now we're not the fruit inspector. God is, and we need to be careful because there's some people you don't think are going to heaven, but they'll be there. Uh, Their fruit may not have been that impressive, but there was enough to verify that they are believers. But you need to ask yourself on this day of easy believism and cheap grace, has my life changed? And if my life hasn't changed, then maybe I don't have the genuine item. Great question. Let's go to the next
0: one. All right, another dictated question. A listener has always been confused on whether he really has the choice to accept Christ. He knows you've been preaching on this recently and wants to know which message he ought to listen to.
1: Well, I would listen to all of Romans 9 for starters. And as we approach Romans 10 after Easter, I would listen to all of Romans 10, uh, because um, these would be great sermons. I did seven sermons out of Romans 9 that speak to the free will of man, that God is not the great puppet master where he's up in heaven where you have no choice at all. Now, you can't take any credit for your salvation in the sense that it didn't begin with you. Uh, It began with the Lord. There is none who seeks God, no, not even one. Unless the Father draws a person, Jesus said, no one is going to come to the Father. So you didn't get the bright idea, well, I think I'll read Josh McDowell and his books on apologetics or C.S. Lewis or, you know, or no, listen, any initiative that was in your heart began with God's initiative. He was the one who put the spark there, or you never would have sought God. None of us would. Some people say, well, I do my theology by experience, and therefore they conclude, I don't remember a time when I never did not seek the Lord. Well, that's just because God sought you very early in life. Um, Maybe as a, a little child, your parents had been begging for your salvation from the time you were in the womb, and God just started early. But again, that was God's initiative in your heart. It wasn't your own. But with that said... Uh, God doesn't say, well, I'll initiate with him, but I'll leave him in the deadness of his sins so he can go to hell. I don't believe that for a second. And I, I think that's a poisonous message. And it's um, maybe more and more the prevalent message in this day. And that's why the evangelical church is reaching so few people. We've lost our passion and our compassion, both our passion and compassion, for winning lost people to the Lord. And so most Christians no longer share their faith. And it's the sad day that we, we live in. Uh, so listen to all the messages in Romans 9. That's where I would start. And, and, and as I preach Romans 10, uh, all the messages after they're preached, they're put online, usually what, the same afternoon, Rick? Or, yeah, so the same afternoon, and you can download them uh, through a smartphone app. Uh, into your own phone or on your computer, or you can watch them on DVD, however you can get them, however you can get God's Word into your heart. Let's go to the next question, 525-1859. If you have a question, toll-free 877-WAGP-980, or you can
0: text us here into the studio at tbl at And Jacob from Texas has done just that. He writes, I need some counsel on an issue we've recently discovered in our local church. We recently joined a church after leaving our previous church due to compromising truth. We just found out that this new church we joined is Cooperative Baptist. We didn't know this until they sent out a mailing for an Easter offering to be given to the Cooperative Missions Fund. We were pretty shocked because we assumed it was either Southern Baptist or not affiliated at all. We now know to be more discerning and do research. The pastor says that the Bible is totally true and referred to 2 Timothy 3, Uh, That seems to contradict what Cooperative Baptists are all about, so um, why be affiliated and support them? Could you give some practical tips on finding a sound church? What questions to ask? It is sad how hard it is to uh, find a healthy, gospel-centered church.
1: Well, Cooperative Baptists can be very stealthy in their approach to how they describe the Bible So you can go on their website sometimes, and uh, they'll say that they believe the Bible to be inspired or even even use the word inerrant, and you certainly want to hear both of those words, but that's not enough in the day that we live in, because uh, there are cooperative Baptists, and let me just say, first of all, cooperative Baptists were founded on the premise that the Bible is not the authoritative, inerrant Word of God. It's founded on that premise. Cecil Sherman, the first president, and the one who followed, and they're liberals, um, and they do not have an accurate biblical view of the Word of God, the kind that Jesus had as he described the Holy Scriptures. With that said... What has happened in our day is that if there's a church that is traditionally Southern Baptist and a new pastor comes, he knows that very often he can't just say, well, we're going to become cooperative Baptists. So he'll begin to create a picture that, you know, these Southern Baptist fundamentalists are divisive and, you know, they're hateful and they're this and they're that. And, you know, and we need to be more open. And then they'll play off of some of the gender issues, you know, and they don't think that women should be pastors. And they they, they think that only men should be pastors. And, and of course, if people are untaught, And this is how conservative churches go liberal when people are untaught and they do not have a clear plumb line in which to measure the messages that they're hearing – they say, well, that doesn't sound right, you know. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe we should like dual align ourselves, and so they become a dual aligned church where they're a Cooperative Baptist slash Southern Baptists because they don't want to run away any people and make those traditional Southern Baptists mad, but but they also want to be more progressive, and and so they use the words, "Oh, we believe the Bible is inerrant," but they don't mean the same thing uh, when you talk to the typical Cooperative Baptists who says that he believes in the inerrancy of the Bible, he believes in what's called functional inerrancy. That is, the Bible is inerrant without error uh, in its ability to lead you to Christ or to help you to live a Christian life. But it's not inerrant in every single word uh, that when it speaks on historical scientific issues uh, is always true. And so you have cooperative Baptists in the United States that are snuggling up with the homosexual gay movement. Listen, we should love gay people, and we should make them feel welcomed in our church, but not as members. People have to believe in the Lord Jesus, just like the immoral heterosexual who's sleeping with his girlfriend. You shouldn't allow him into the membership of your church until he's born again, until he shows the evidences of repentance. Uh, there should be some change in his life if he's openly living in a moral lifestyle and wants to come and join your church. And so, there's so much compromise in our day. It's just it's sickening. Um, in the state of South Carolina, if you're a Cooperative Baptist, you see they don't have their own seminary. So what do they do? Well, they they don't want to send you to a you know a conservative. Bible-believing seminary because that would poison your thinking. So you can go to the Lutheran Theological Seminary up there in Columbia, which is an apostate seminary. Go there, ladies. Uh, By the way, you can be preachers, ladies. So go there, or go there, young men. Um, And it's just very, 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 very sad. Um, So when you Um, You know, and some of these pastors, they're just dishonest. I don't know how else to say it. They're just less than honest because they want members and they want people, but they are leading that church in the wrong direction. I wouldn't give a dime to a cooperative baptist church knowing some of the causes that they are underwriting. I just read the newsletter that just came out for Cooperative Baptists in South Carolina and it's all that stealthy language about inclusiveness and you know wrapping our arms around mainline apostate denominations and that's the new president for South Carolina. It's a bunch of garbage. And so run far from it. You want to you know there if there's a denomination That you're a part of that is less than orthodox. And I'm not talking about secondary issues, and that's what they'll try to do. Well, you know, Christians don't agree on everything. Of course we don't. There are some secondary issues that Christians may differ on, but they're not issues of orthodoxy or genuineness of conversion. Uh, But lay that aside. There are issues that are non-negotiables, and you should look for that as you look for a church. There should be some doctrinal purity. And when you're a part of a denomination, you say, well, my church is pure. So you're in a PCUSA church. Okay, so when you give your money, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that you're in a PCUSA. I didn't say PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, which are the conservative Presbyterians, but Presbyterian Church United States of America, which was the PCUS uniting with the Northern brand. And the Northern brand had denied... been ordaining men for over two decades who could deny the deity of Christ and still be ordained as Presbyterian pastors, and they united both branches. And so when you give a dollar to those churches, you're helping to support their liberal apostate seminaries and other other things. You say, well, I designate my giving. Okay, so your $10 that you designated um, is replaced by somebody else's $10 that goes and supports the liberal cause. So it's you, there is a place for a biblical separation. Uh, so anyway, um, listen to the last Bible line, because I went through six or seven things to, listen, uh, to watch for when you find a good church. All right, let's go to the next question, Rick.
0: All right. In 1 Corinthians 14.33, it says, God is not the author of confusion, yet there are times when this caller hears you read a scripture on a Sunday morning and the reality or magnitude of, this, uh, of it hits this caller and he just wants to applaud God's word, is this causing confusion? Preach it, brother. Uh, <laughs> well,
1: n- uh, no, but, you know, again, there's a, you know, there's a place to say amen. Sometimes your cup just overflows and you say amen. We, we had a lady one time who visited our church and every, th- every 30 seconds she said, amen, amen. Amen. I could have said, the devil is God, and she would have said, amen. It was like it was mindless. And it was distracting. And sometimes people come from a church where the expression of worship is so outward, it is a form of confusion. And sometimes, too, if you're trying to reach a broad spectrum of people, you want to be all things to all men so that you can win some. And so if someone came from a, a Pentecostal background where, again, there's nothing wrong, say, with using a tambourine, say, in a worship service, but you've got people out in the congregation who are slamming their tambourines, it will turn off in an unnecessary way people who are from maybe a higher church, more traditional background. Now I'm open for, you know, expressive worship. If somebody wants to raise their hands, great, but don't put it in the person's face next to you so that they think, man, this guy's got his hand in my face. You know, do it in a way that you're not trying to call attention to yourself. And some people who I've seen over the years, you know, who are very outward in their worship, inwardly, they're, they've got real issues going on in their life, and it's just somewhat hip- hypocritical. Now, I'm not saying there are other people who are very outward in their worship, and it's from the purest of hearts. But my point is, is there is the need for sensitivity uh, so that your public expressions are not a detriment to other people. Uh, but, you know, sometimes, amen, you know, that, that that's okay. And um, but if you're the only one, amen and all the time, maybe you should just pull back just a little bit. Or if you're uncertain, ask your pastor,
0: you know. So anyway, go, let's go to the next question. Our next listener writes, uh, my coworker told me yesterday that God works outside of the Bible and that it's possible to learn about Christ from a Buddhist. His reasoning is that because we're created in the image of God, so each and every one of us. As a kernel of God within us, I told him that God would not go against his own word. I also told him that that line of thinking is so dangerous because he was trying to explain infinite God with a finite mind. He accused me of putting God in a box. What are your thoughts on this matter? Well, I think you're absolutely
1: correct that your friend has a very distorted view of God. There's not a little bit of God in us. Um, Now, it is true we're made in the image and likeness of God. But with that said, uh, the Bible teaches that we are spiritually dead. There's not, you know, you're not supposed to seek for the God within you. That's a form of self-worship, and uh, it's not true to the Word of God. Here's the critical question. Here's the critical question you have to ask and answer. Your friend has to ask and answer for himself. Very simply, is the Bible true? Is the Bible true? Is the Bible the only book that God ever wrote? I wrote a little booklet entitled, How to Prove the Bible is True. And I go through five proofs to show that the only book God ever wrote on planet Earth is the Holy Scripture. And that's an important question that your friend has to ask and answer for himself. Because if we have a measuring stick, a plumb line, the word means comes from a Latin word that means a measuring stick. And so if God has given us a plumb line in which to evaluate any idea that I have, and if that plumb line is the Scripture, then all the things that your friend has espoused and, and these other uh, philosophies that he's embraced are contrary to Scripture. Now, that's not to say that there couldn't be a degree of truth in another religion. Like Muslims acknowledge there's a God. Um, Now, the Allah of the Muslim faith is different from the Allah of the Christian faith, and I say Allah because the Greek word is theos. In English, we translate it God, but if you live in Saudi Arabia or one of the Arabic-speaking countries, the Bible, in their Bible, it says Allah every time the word God appears. But the Allah of the Bible is different from the Allah of the Muslim faith. But let's just take Islam for a second. They say there is a God. Okay, that's true. That, that the fool has said in his heart there's no God. So there's a degree of truth in that. But then there's a lot of error, too, that is antithetical to the Word of God and goes against what the Bible teaches. So it's not to say that a false religion couldn't have degrees of truth. In fact, that's one of Satan's masterminding um, approaches is he mixes truth with error. But how to prove the Bible is true, it's critical, and that's what your friend has to ask and answer. Let's go to the next question.
0: Our next listener would like to know, why is wisdom referred to in the Proverbs as she? Jesus also refers to wisdom as she. Why is this?
1: Well, it's a good question. Um a couple of reasons. Number one, in certain languages of the world, like Spanish or German or Greek or Hebrew, words can be classified as masculine or feminine. We do that to some degree in English, like boy clearly is masculine, girl is feminine. But every noun in Greek and in Hebrew is classified as masculine, feminine, or neuter. We do that in an informal sense in English, like somebody typically refers to his boat as a she, or she's a great vessel, or this or that. And, um, you know, why some words are feminine or masculine, that's a study for their history. But in Hebrew, the word for wisdom, chokmoth, is is a feminine word. So right off, it would be appropriate to classify the word wisdom. Um, I have my Bible open to Proverbs one twenty. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts up her voice. Um, but it's also interesting to think about wisdom as it's personified um, in the book of Proverbs chapters 7 and 8 and 9. You find two passages side by side that really gives the speech of a woman. And both women are described as, you know, roaming the streets, so to speak. And both women are inviting men into their homes. Uh, Both have a a table that they've set. And interestingly, one path ends up ultimately in death. On into chapter 9, the other path um, ends up in life. So you've got this one man who's you know walking down the street near near you know the woman of folly, and he gets sucked into her house. Uh, but then you have wisdom in in chapter eight speaking about blessed are those that listen to me, who watch at my doors every single day. So God makes this parallel between. You know the the adulterous woman of folly in Chapter Seven with another woman that 's calling in chapter eight does not wisdom call and understand lift understanding lift up her voice versus this other woman who 's calling and inviting a young man who lacks sense into her way of life so um, there 's many good reasons for describing wisdom. As a female, uh, because both have a lure one into sin, the woman of folly, and the woman of wisdom into into truth well we 're about out of time, uh, but as always it 's a privilege and pleasure to be with you here on the Bible line. If you would uh, like to go to Israel with us next year. I tell the Bible people, you can read the Bible sometimes in black and white, but after a trip to Israel, you sometimes you end up reading in living color. And so if you'd like information on that, you can go to searchthescriptures.org. There's a brochure with all the details that are outlined. Uh, there, there's a couple of meetings coming up for people who are like, would like information on that, and hopefully we can get those on our website as well. If not, you can call us locally. And uh, you can ask those questions. Listen, this is an opportunity this week to reach out. People will be more open this week to an invitation to invite them to church than any other week of the year. So you reach out this week. If you're in a Bible-believing, Christ-exalting church, invite someone. Let God use you. Let Let you be the instrument in the hand of God. Have a great day. Walk with Christ.